You are listening to the Change Management Review Podcast, where we bring you the best tactics, strategies, and actionable insights for change through our powerful interviews with change management practitioners and leaders. And now here's your host, Brian Gorman. Welcome to the Change Management Review Podcast. I'm Brian Gorman, Managing Editor of Change Management Review. And our guest today is Paul Leinwand. Paul is the Global Managing Director for Capabilities Driven Strategy and Growth with Strategy End, which is PwC's global strategy consulting business. A principal with PwC, Paul advises board and management teams on the topics of strategy, growth, and capability building with a focus on consumer products and healthcare. Paul is the co-author of three books, one of which is the focus of our conversation today, Beyond Digital, How Great Leaders Transform Their Organizations and Shape the Future. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Brian. Great to be here. So an important premise of your book is that organizations can shape their future. In fact, that's the title of your first chapter, Shape Your Future. And you begin the chapter with a quote from Nobel Prize winning physicist, Dennis Gabor. The future cannot be predicted, but futures can be invented. You state at the outset that the nature of competitive advantage has shifted and that being digital is not enough. What are some of the indicators you see that digitization is necessary, but not sufficient for competitive advantage in the future? It's a great question and a really good way to start. And if I, if I back up to the, to the early part of that question, executives have been looking at this topic of technology change for a long time. And the discussion of disruption, right, sort of this idea that things are coming to us Right. And that a lot of this, you know, kind of a lot of things are out of our control. You know, Matt, my co-author and I, when we started the research for Beyond Digital, we were really focused on this idea that actually we were seeing a number of organizations that were taking things in their control. Yes, there's a lot that's out of our control, but shaping your future, creating your own value proposition to serve customers, deciding on what capabilities you want to invest in. These are all decisions that companies have. And most disruption, when we really look at business model disruption, it's happening from other companies, right? So someone is actually making those decisions to change how business works. And so the book was really focused on this idea of how do you think about broader transformation? How do you get that destination right? And in that research, we could see lots of digitization happening, you know, lots of technology that was being embedded inside of processes and organizations but little of it was actually driving competitive advantage. Much of it was catching up. Much of it was driving efficiency. And so we studied 12 organizations that were doing more than just digitization. They were really transforming who they were, shaping their own future, and disrupting what they were doing. For those of us who are in professions like change management, where digitization is just really at the nursery school level, I think, it's just beginning to touch the edge of our practice. Do you see the need for focusing on a both-end approach at this point, or can we catch up with the digitization before we start worrying about 
creating our future? Such a fantastic question, because I think that's at the base of what a lot of organizations look at when they see maybe how far they have to go to catch up. And yet they recognize that all that's going to do is catch up. And so they often have great insight around how they can leap forward. But then when resources are limited, when time feels very limited, they often say, well, we've got to get the table stakes right. We've got to catch up because we can't catch up. We're going to, we've got this leaky bucket. We're going to lose customers. We're going to lose, you know, value. And so begins this challenge of how much can I do against the broader transformation when I feel behind? I think the answer from these 12 organizations is that the amount of effort to catch up is significant uh, and the amount of investment to catch up is significant. And while you're catching up, you can actually be doing a lot to transform in the right way. And part of the challenge is that you probably shouldn't be catching up everywhere, right? You should be catching up and leaping forward in a few areas. The things that really matter to your stated value equation with your customers or to society. And that will help you focus around the things that you can really get done. I think the, the world of ESG has been an amazing change for organizations where we're now expected in a positive way to impact lots of other things. But this has actually raised the stakes of this problem, right? Because now as a management team and as a board, I not only have to run initiatives to create more profitability, but I've got to run initiatives to drive ESG. And again, these 12 organizations in the book looked at ESG as an enabler, right? How do I actually make progress on some ESG initiatives that are really important to what my customers think rather than trying to be great at everything? Paul, for the listeners who don't know, could you tell us what you mean by ESG? Absolutely. This is such a, you know important topic. And first of all, ESG stands for environment, social governance. And those are essentially umbrellas for a various set of initiatives, right? Which are deemed to be important to customers, to society, that we want to make sure that all organizations are making progress on. I think the challenge often with ESG is that without the North Star of why are some of these initiatives important for me, we see boards and management teams trying to kind of do it all. And each of these areas are complex, and there's probably some that we have to improve to some level, and then there's some that we probably want to be leaders for. Without that definition, ESG and all of the various ESG components become almost shadow purposes, right? They become things that are supposed to define who we are, but we have a purpose, and that's the value we create in society. And we can't necessarily manage multiple purposes at the same time. And so in these 12 organizations, and in general, we really encourage leaders to figure out what is their ESG agenda? Why does it matter to them? And how does it get integrated in your purpose rather than sitting as a separate set of initiatives? Great. Thank you, Paul. Could you just provide a brief summary of the seven strategies that take organizations beyond digitization? Yeah. So in these in these organizations that we looked at, and by the way, you know, some of the organizations included Philips and Microsoft and Citigroup and Komatsu. So we chose organizations that were really diverse in terms of the sectors they were in, but also the geographies uh, that they were based out of. And we essentially conducted two or three years of research and arrived at these seven imperatives, the areas that we saw all 12 organizations really focused on in terms of transforming themselves rather than just digitizing uh, and accomplishing something meaningful with their customers. And we group those seven in sort of three large buckets. The first is how do these organizations face the world? The second is how do they 
maybe rethink who they are as an organizational entity in order to face that world in a new way? And then finally, what does the leader or leaders have to do to advance their own capability and skill set? And so those three broad, broad buckets. In that first of facing the world, I mean, this is where, you know, we had some amazing stories of organizations that were reimagining their future, as you mentioned, in terms of the, the first chapter, really rethinking why are they here? What are they doing? What would happen if they would disappear? These, these really tough questions, but questions that need answers to. The second area around ecosystems, because if I'm going to take on a larger role in society, I want to make sure that I'm not doing that just alone. A lot of the problems we have today, like in healthcare, they can't be solved by one organization. So how do I embrace ecosystems and work with a broad set of partners? And the third topic in that area is all about privileged insights, which is about getting to know your customers in a way to provide information that likely competitors can't have. The old version is market research, but you know anybody can conduct the same focus group or survey and get the same information. Uh, Privilege Insights is about doing something much more significant. On the organization internally, there were three areas as well. Um, the first is creating outcome-oriented teams, and I think for you know those that have studied change management over years, a, a big challenge we have is that operating model that exists, the functional business unit operating model, and it, it served us very well for you know a good hundred years. But what we saw emerging in these organizations were kind of bringing skills together in teams to get things done, with accountability to get something done, rather than assembling cross-functional teams, which is a vehicle with a lot of uh, frustration. The outcome-oriented team is really something we're seeing in many areas where there's focus around capabilities that matter. So you can imagine, rather than R&D innovation, right? Rather than you know just selling, we have customer solution development, like in Microsoft. So there's lots of examples of bringing these teams together. And the, the next area in that internally fixing uh, group is the leadership team. To make sure the leadership team is ready and capable to drive a transformation forward. Incredibly important topic. We just wrote an article in HBR that was kind of zeroed in on the leadership team. And the final area is the social contract with your people. Because if you're going to get that transformation done to that reimagined place in the world and managing ecosystems... We need all of our people to be motivated around that mission. So it's not just about, do I want to keep my employees? Yes, I definitely want to do that. And today's environment uh, reinforces that concept. But we want our employees to really do the incredible things we need them to. And that requires a reinvention of the social contract. And then, as I mentioned, that last year is all about the leader or leaders and a program to really have them think about their own development. We don't have time, Paul, to dive in deeply into all of these, but I do want to dive into some that I think really have an impact on the change management profession as well. The second strategy is embrace and create value via ecosystems. Can you dive into that one in a little more detail for us? It's such a such a tough topic in a way because ecosystems have been used as a term for a while, but I think we all struggle a little bit with what does that mean and how do we use those? And we often think about platforms, right? So we'll think about the platform businesses out there and joining a platform. And a lot of companies say, well, I don't think I'm really going to create my own platform at this point. Ecosystems are much broader than that. Um, ecosystems are really about being in the middle of a set of other organizations that are trying to accomplish a specific goal. And so a good example of this comes from, comes from the book, uh, Komatsu. 
And Komatsu is an organization that you know we often see as we're driving past construction sites. You'll see that Komatsu name on on construction equipment. You know they had a really good business selling equipment or renting equipment, and then they they came to this idea that actually yes, selling equipment is great, but there's a bigger challenge out there, which is the construction site. And construction sites are notorious actually for lots of inefficiencies. There's safety questions, um, timing questions, labor challenges. And they recognized that you had lots of players coming together. And yes, the general contractor was probably trying to integrate everything. Um, but there were tremendous opportunities to share information, improve the effectiveness and efficiency of a construction site. And so they built a system where they were sharing their data with everybody else around, you know, when is equipment showing up and when should materials show up and when should labor show up? And this became essentially its own value proposition, right? Because that's not about selling equipment. It's about helping to improve the condition of a construction site. But it took lots of players, including their competitors, to also share information because everybody had to be part of that exercise. So platforms are not the only way to reach the goals of an ecosystem. In fact, they're just one way. And we see this orchestrator model, which is what Komatsu drove, as something really valuable and something that a lot of organizations should think about. Pretty much every organization is sitting in an ecosystem today or many ecosystems right? Restaurants benefit when their cities, you know, have a lot of business conventions, you know, hotels the same way. And so the question is not so much, are you in an ecosystem? You probably are. The question is, what else can you be doing with your ecosystem to advance your mission and advance the mission of everybody? Thank you. Your third strategy is building a system of privileged insight with your customers. That one calls for a different customer relationship, just like ecosystems calls for a different relationship between customers and vendors. How do you see inter-organizational and organization-customer relationships shifting in the future? No, Brian, that's that's such a, a good topic. And, and clearly, everybody wants to get closer to, to their customers. Everybody is interested in building you know, really great connections with customers that hopefully will be loyal for a long time and provide a lifetime of value. And so that's been a goal out there. I think there's a lot of organizations working on it. The 12 companies in our in our research took this pretty far, uh, and that's why we call it a system of privileged insights, because they recognized that as they improved their value proposition to customers, as they offered more value, their customers were interested in what they were doing, and their customers were interested in spending more time. And as they developed these solutions and experiences, customers were joining them. And in joining them, we were learning a lot about what some of the basic customer challenges are. Really good example here. Uh, there's many good examples, but one of my favorites is from IKEA, right? IKEA has cameras in people's homes, you know, which is kind of shocking, actually, if you think about it. But it it goes to the point that great privileged insights capability starts with great trust, right? That I'm delivering value for you and I'm doing it in a way consistent with my own principles. And it starts with an idea that I can exchange information and there can be value in that exchange. And so IKEA is watching how we live our lives to understand some of those basic challenges. You can't get that out of a survey and you may not be able to get that out of a focus group and it's their customers. Adobe, another organization in our research, you know, built this incredible model where as you're using their products, they're helping you solve problems that they see you experiencing in the moment. Right. So I'm searching for help in these menu bars. I'm probably struggling to find the right solution, but they're also learning 
what are we doing with their applications all the time? How can they be building the next set of solutions that will advance what their products do? And that's all part of this privileged insights, right? It's a system by which we build experiences, we connect with customers, customers trust us, they're sharing more information, not because they necessarily want to, they're happy to, because that's part of the exchange. That's part of the exchange of value. And then we do something with that information rather than store it in some data lake uh, where we actually innovate, we improve the service, we improve our products at the same time. Throughout your strategies, I kept on reading things that really resonated with me because of my involvement with um, the future of work, the great resignation, and so forth. You talk about reinventing the social contract with employees. You talk about disrupting your own leadership approach. You talk about making your organization outcome-oriented. All of those, in my experience, are going to be critical for companies to not just survive, but thrive through this tremendous shift in uh, the workplace. What do you see as the future for organizations that are unwilling or unable to make those changes? That's a tough question, but it's it's you know certainly very important. And my my co-author Matt, if you were here, he would he would say that organizations that really don't embrace this new social contract or rethink how they are structured to deliver the value, they'll likely become less relevant over time. Not only because their customers right won't see the value but because they won't have the employee experience that is required to build some of these incredible capabilities or deliver them to customers every single day. And the kind of bar is going up around competitive advantage, right? The digital environment has essentially created visibility and transparency to all of our choices. So you can't hide anymore. You can't be just okay. And that will be increasingly so. And so either we recognize that we've got to build meaningful competitive advantage, which a lot of organizations don't have today. And in so doing, we've got to advance that, you know, that mechanism of how do we work together? How do we lead? And how do we really encourage, embrace, motivate all of our employees to go on that mission with us? Paul, what, and I know we could talk for hours on all of this, but what other key lessons would you like to share with our listeners today? I think one of the greatest things I learned in the research was the leader's responsibility to balance today and tomorrow. And yes, we know that. Yes, we understand leaders are supposed to do that. But there were very specific comments by the leaders of these 12 organizations that said, it is our responsibility to perform and transform. That was the CEO of Phillips. And you know what he meant was that Yes, of course, we're supposed to be thinking about the long term, but we often get caught up in the short term. There's so many fires, and certainly the last two years has provided lots of impetus for us to focus on the short term. But we won't have a short term eventually if we can't figure out how to migrate to the right long term. And in so doing, I think there's a recognition that transformation needs a destination, right? We have to transform towards something. And there's too many transformations today that if you ask, well, what what competitive advantage are you really building? How are you going to serve society or your customers in a different way? Those answers are not clear. And therefore, the transformation efforts, which are expensive and take a huge amount of energy, they tend not to drive the type of change that we want. And so clarity around where we're headed is so incredibly important, even if it takes us some period of time to get there. Paul, thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Change Management Review Podcast. Be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.